you to turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8 is what we're in currently. Romans chapter 8. We're going to go through a few verses, and that will be um, starting at verse 5 and going through all the way to verse 11. If you are able to see the announcements before you came into church this morning, Romans chapter 8. I'd just like to have it open in my copy of the Word, even though I do follow the PowerPoint. And I thought I, I do have a bookmark. I just wasted all those times flipping, flip, flicking the pages. Romans chapter 8, and I'll start my timer. And let's begin, shall we? The title I decided to give today is In the Flesh versus In the Spirit. So from the outset of this message, a clear understanding of what it means to be in the flesh versus being in the Spirit is what we're trying to achieve. Do you have a firm, cement understanding of whether, firstly, you are in the flesh or in the Spirit, and secondly, what actually does that mean? These phrases are very common in Paul's writings, and they are very important to understand because it helps us know who we are in Christ. So we begin with um, a, a, a verse that has a few variations of the phrasing which are underlined in the PowerPoint I have here. For those who are according to the flesh. I think in my Bible it says for those that are after the flesh. For those who live according to the flesh is another version and you might have something else. There's quite a number of variations. I think I can confidently say that it means in the flesh. To in the flesh. And because I, I say that because it's mentioned later on in the verses we're, which we're about to cover. So we've just gone through the first few verses of Romans chapter 8. So have a quick read of them if you haven't been with us lately or if you haven't been able to listen to the messages online because this might be confusing for you. What I'm trying to do, and I I'm, I'm hope that you try to do it, is try to get into the mind of Paul. What do you think he's trying to say here? The reason I say that is because you checked up a message online regarding Romans chapter 8. I think people have missed the point. You'll see two different kinds of messages on Romans chapter 8. Now, I get a hint when I first, um, when I first was exposed to Romans chapter 8, say, and, and the first few messages, and from then on, it seemed to be the same thing, and, and my, my interpretation of it has been not what it used to be. It's, 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 I don't believe that's what we're, Paul was trying to achieve, but there's a few verses in this passage which reflect on what I'm, I'm trying to get on about. So um, I've been getting hints, just remember, identity versus behavior. What is Paul trying to address here? Is Paul trying to address our identity or is he trying to address our behavior? That's the main question. So those who are according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. That makes sense, doesn't it? Pretty self-explanatory. But those who are according to the Spirit 
workings of the Spirit. I have a question there on the PowerPoint, just as a prompt. Can you be both? A lot of people think you can be. A lot of people think you can become a Christian and one minute you can be in the flesh, the other minute you can be in the Spirit. Why do you think that? It's because they believe that being in the flesh is dependent on what you are doing, not on who you are. It's be- they believe it's because being in the Spirit is dependent on what you're doing. So, if you're attending Thursday morning Bible study, prayer meeting, Wednesday night, oh, you're being in the Spirit. If you're reading your Bible, oh, you're being in the Spirit. If you're attending, if you're here in church, today, you're, you're in the Spirit. But, well, if you're not doing those things, let's just say you're at the beach right now, enjoying that. Well, everyone else is at church. <laughs> and it causes us to, to doubt. It causes us to, to waver. It causes us to not be and to not be able to really know who we actually are. What's going on here? And what's Paul trying to say? And I'm convinced that Paul right now is comparing, or probably is contrasting. He's contrasting two kinds of lives, I say. He's contrasting two kinds of people. And we always say, you know, there's three kinds of people in this world. There's two kinds of people, and it depends on what, you know, those who count, that can count, and those who can't. Stuff like that. There's two kinds of people. I forget the joke on that. and just it's mind blank. But you've heard that joke. You could say there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who are in the flesh and those who are in the spirit. If you've been traveling along this road, through seven chapters, going into chapter eight, you, I hope you would know what being in the spirit, being in the flesh means. And that's why I think Paul is just really coming to a, a summarization. Because from this point on, he's not really addressing the identity anymore after this chapter, or even at the end of this chapter. He's going on to practicalities. see a contrast here. I see Paul saying, well, there's two kinds of people here, guys. There are those who are according to the flesh, who are in the flesh. They set their minds on things of the flesh. And those who are according to the Spirit, they set their minds on things of the Spirit. But you might say, oh, okay, I don't have a confession time right now. I'm not perfect. I cannot percent of the time, I'm setting my mind on things of the Spirit. There are some times when I do get carried away. I might be rude to someone. I might not do the right thing. I can't say I'm really setting my mind on the Spirit. But look what I'm doing. Well, look what you're doing if you're doing that in your head right now. You're looking at your behavior rather than your identity. What's Paul addressing here? So 
So can you be both? No, you can't. Once you receive Christ, we're going to find out that the Spirit resides in you. If the Spirit resides in you, I think that's another way of saying you're in the Spirit. The reason I, I believe we can't be both is because we are promised in Scripture that the Spirit never leaves you. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption, until that day when we are with our Lord Jesus Christ. So if the Holy Spirit does not leave you, he promises he will never leave you, then can we ever be in the flesh? You might have a question then, then what's happening if I sin? Where am I? And I'll tell you. You are in the Spirit, but you are just not being led by the Spirit. Can you sin and be in the Spirit? Yes. But then we get to a verse like this. For, which to me, Paul is continuing the thought. For to be carnally minded is death. But, you see the contrast here. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. This verse again. Here's another reason I think there's a contrast. Firstly, these are rhetorical questions, of course, but feel free to speak out loud if you want, Pete. If you are in the flesh, can you set your mind on the spirit? It's impossible. But if you are in the spirit, can you set your mind? On the flesh. I think you can. So just think about being in the flesh. They have not, they don't have the Holy Spirit in them. It is impossible for them to be spiritually minded. So that's another reason I think it's a contrast. But then you look at verse 6, and have you ever heard a message on this and felt convicted? I have plenty of times. I felt guilt coming out of that sermon. Because they use this to address a Christian's behavior. Again, I ask, is Paul, do you think Paul is addressing that though? Do you think Paul is up to the stage where he's addressing a Christian's behavior? I don't think so. So let's get to this verse. For to be carnally minded is death. We know that. He's reiterated that quite a number of times, has he not? To be in the flesh is death. We just went last week at the law of sin. The law of sin, if you're still an Adam, it's death. The result is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. We have life and we have peace. And this is what peace is one of our church values. I want us to be a, a people where someone comes to this, comes into these, this, these, these doors 
through these doors into this room and they cannot just experience the peace coming from, not just experience the peace of God. I'm not really talking about the peace of God. I'm talking about us being able to offer peace with God. Because obviously you can't have the peace of God without having peace with God. The peace with God, that's perfect unity. When we talk about John chapter 17, that's what we are offering. That's our message. Peace with God. You can have peace with God. You don't have to work for it. But to be spiritually minded, that's life and peace. And so I see a contrast once again. This is interesting, though, because you've heard the term carnal Christian. Have you heard the term carnal Christian before? Are you a carnal Christian? We, we have this term in the church world to relate to someone who's a Christian, but they're living a lifestyle of just sin. I don't know whether this is a good term to use, because to me it confuses us. Again, it gives me doubts. Because first of all, who's to say how many times someone out there, we, you probably think of someone right now, they profess Jesus Christ as the Lord and Saviour, no, they live by it, but we know them 24-7. How do we know whether the, oh, one, one moment they might be spiritually minded? They might be setting their minds on, on the Spirit. They might be setting their mind of, of the love of God. We don't know, just because they might be living a lifestyle. And so we talk to people of carnal Christians. And when we get this from um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, so 1 to 4, I, you can turn to your passage there in your own Bibles, but I have it here on the, the screen. So Paul obviously writing to the church in Corinth. He says, Brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am a poor, and another, I am a polis, are you not carnal? So there you have it. Wow. Paul says there's carnal Christians, so we can use it. But if this interests you, I'm not convinced. Just look at the Greek. He uses a different Greek word for carnal. I'm just wondering why. I don't have the answer myself, but it's just something just to think about if you want to go deeper into this kind of you know, carnality that we experience. It's, it's Greek, yes. It's Greek, yes. You have to go and, and research the Greek. This is English. But when you look at that word carnal, the Greek word is different to what we see in Romans chapter 8. Why does Paul do that? I propose we just use a different word. Immature. He does reflect to him as babes in Christ. He's feeding him milk, not meat. There are terms when we say, you know, Jesus loves you, milk. But meat, Jesus chose you. Oh, that's a bit deeper. <laughs> right? You're not up to that stage yet, he's saying. 
Look, it's just evident in your lifestyle. Maybe, I propose, should we be using terms like immature Christian? Maybe it's a conversation starter for later on. But let's move on. So verse 6, read that. For to be carnally minded is death, to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. And this is why I believe it's dangerous to use that. Because if you are in a spirit, and I go ahead and set my mind on carnal things, and God forbid I, I go out, I, I actually commit the, the, the sinful act, I straight away read that, oh no, I'm an enemy of God. Do you think Paul is trying to tell God's children that they are enemies of God if they are carnal? We know that's not right because it contradicts other scriptures. God has declared us righteous. I don't think God can declare us righteous, justify us, and at the same time, declare us as his enemy. You could say that the mind is enmity, but I, I think it, it causes too much confusion. Again, I see a comparison here or a contrast. First of all, it's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Notice the small L. So it's not talking about subject to, you know, obeying the law of God. It's talking about pleasing God. It's talking about even, again, being spiritually minded, doing things for the, the sake of the things of God, the sake of the kingdom, the sake of the, the, the love that he has for all of us. So the question I had there, which I hopefully have addressed, are Christians enemies of God if they sin? I don't believe so. So back to what it has to be is Paul referring to someone who is an actual enemy of God. And we've gone through this in previous chapters. You are an enemy of God if you have not received Christ as Saviour. It's, it's just a fact. We don't really like to say it out loud because it's quite confronting. We say God loves everyone, and yes, he does. God loves everyone to the point where he has provided a way for you to have everything, to have life. But you have to accept it. You have to receive it. Until you receive it, you are an enemy of God. You can't be on the fence. It's just like you are either holy or unholy. There's no middle ground. So they're not subject to the law of God. And so I chose... Um, no, I did this next because this, this, tells, this tells us why. So then those who are in the flesh... That they cannot please God. It's impossible to please God if you are still in the flesh. That's another way of saying they are not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. It's a simple way of saying it. You cannot please God. But what about those honest, loving, humble, good-hearted people that you, we all know? Surely 
What about them? Surely all the good things, even their humility, look at their humility, surely that's, that's not enmity towards God. And we have to say it is. We have to say it is. Hebrews 11.6 backs us up. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. So don't be tempted to think when we're doing something in the flesh that it's, that it's like, I won't say evil, but it's, it's like bad. It's like disgusting, like murder and, and stealing and, and lusting and all those things that we're told about in you know, 1 Corinthians 6 and, and Galatians 5, just before we get into the fruits of the Spirit. But think about this. Someone who's not a Christian, could be the most humble person out there. I know plenty. They're not full of themselves. They always look out for others. But this is hard to say. They cannot please God. They cannot please God because they're not doing it in faith. They're probably doing it for a self-righteous kind of reason. And we know self-righteousness is not what God wants. Our righteousness is only from God. It's got nothing to do with us. Verse 9, however, he gives assurance to these people in Rome. Remember, he hasn't met them, but he is addressing Christians. But just because he's addressing Christians, does he, does he mean he's always talking about Christians? This brings us confusion a bit. You are not in the flesh. If you trust Jesus Christ as your saviour for the forgiveness of your sins, you are not in the flesh. You are not in the flesh. Do you need to hear that again? You are not in the flesh. But you're in the spirit. Do you need to hear that this morning? That's assurance for you. Paul's saying, it's not me. You are in the spirit. And we know he's not talking about every single person. He's talking about those who have trusted Jesus Christ. So, what happens if, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you? And this is the good news. This is where the Holy Spirit is brought into it. This is where we learn about the Holy Spirit more. Coming out of Adam and into Christ, this verse tells me that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in me. It sets his place in me. Not an it. It's a him. It's a person. An actual person. I say that for a reason, which we'll get into soon. God dwells in you. The Spirit of God. We just call it the Holy Spirit. Did I just say it? Him. Him. He resides in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. I've gone into this a few times, baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's a whole doctrine on what the baptism of the Holy Spirit means. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? We've got glimpses of that in Jesus' baptism. And we seem to relate our story to that. I didn't get any doves when I got baptized. That's not the point of the dove. It's not meant to set a precedent for every single person. 
Just keep that in mind when you read the book of Acts as well. All those events are not meant to set precedence for what we, how we live right now or what happens when we do things. But do you see a contrast again? Paul is continually contrasting those who are Christians, those who are not. Those who are believers, those who are not. Those who are in Christ, those who are in Adam. Those who are in the Spirit, those who are in the flesh. How do you know if you have, are in the Spirit? You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Why then? Why then do we believe that we get baptized with the Holy Spirit? I'll say some of us believe we get baptized with the Holy Spirit as a separate occasion to us receiving Christ. It does not make sense. It doesn't make sense. If you come across these kinds of people, I still, they're Christians. They still believe. They still have the Holy Spirit. Just, their knowledge is not just not there. Here's the questions to ask to get them to think. This is what I'll do. First of all, is the Holy Spirit a person? Yes. We can testify to that. So if it's a person, I, the reason I ask that question, can a person be split up into different little bits? No. But you'll find out these people who believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they can get, they can get certain levels of baptisms, right? And they use the scriptures like, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, oh, I want to get more of the Holy Spirit. It's a person. Do you think God splits up himself when he resides in us? Or do you think once the Holy Spirit dwells in us, it's all of him? And that's it. So, second question. With that, can the person be divided into parts? Three. When did you receive the Holy Spirit? Ask them this question. When did they receive it? Well, more than likely, they will say, when I got baptized in the Holy Spirit, which according to their doctrine is separate occasion to them receiving Christ. And it's usually evidenced in speaking in tongues. So therefore, question four. Well, verse nine of Romans chapter eight just told me, anyone who does not have the Holy Spirit in them does not belong to God. That says it right there in verse nine. Therefore, when you received Christ, did you belong to him? They have to say yes, right? And so, did the Holy Spirit come to reside in you when you came to Christ? Or did it come afterwards? Or did it come at both, both times? And you see the contradiction there if they say afterwards or if they say both. It's just logic. So I highly, highly recommend those. Just think out the logic and use verse 9. It's, it's a marvelous verse. And 10. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. Do you find that interesting? We just said the Holy Spirit is in us. Now it's saying Christ is in you. 
And I'll say, yes. <laughs> I'll say, Christ is in us through the Holy Spirit. He gives us hints that He's in us too because you go back to, I didn't put this verse in the PowerPoint, but um, you go to Revelation chapter 3. You all probably all know it. You don't even have to turn there. He goes, what does he say? I stand at the door and knock. He's knocking. And by the way, just in preparation for Romans chapter 9, he doesn't knock down the door. He's knocking. Okay? Knocking on the door. If you open it, I will come in and sup with you. Here's a great, a great evangelistic method if you are scared to evangelize because you don't know all the answers. Just to ask him one question. Do you have Christ living in you? It's as simple as that. Just one question. And just take note of the answer. The answer will either be a confident yes I remember receiving Christ at blah, 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 when I was blah, 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 at blah, 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 blah. Or I will say, hmm, well, I have been going to church my whole life. Well, I did get baptized as a child. And they will use all these things that they have done for them to be like just over the fence, they will try to convince you, yeah, I've done this. That to me is not evidence that Christ is in you. Evidence that Christ is in you is understanding that Christ has changed you. And it's got nothing to do with what you've done. And how can they be confident of this? Even if they might be living a lifestyle of sin, they're confident because the Spirit bears witness in them. The Spirit, if the Spirit's in them, it will bear, He will bear witness to them. There will be that. Might not be 100% assurance, depending on what they've been brought up to believe. For instance, hearing a message like this, saying, but I'm an enemy of God if I'm just, I'm just, I'm not right with God. Again, it depends on their experience, but just take note of the answer. Take note of their answer. They will either indicate what they've done or they'll indicate it's what God's done. Does this sound familiar, by the way? I don't even have to explain this verse because you should know what it's talking about. If you don't, Romans chapter 6. Go back there if you have to. Verse 11. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. You're dead to sin because that's our sinful nature. Our old, sinful heart, spirit, nature, whatever you want to call it, it's dead. It's been crucified. And with our crucifixion comes a new life, a new heart, a new spirit, a new nature. It's alive. We're alive. And it's in Christ Jesus. So Romans chapter 6, if that's still confusing to you when you read verse 10, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And then we conclude our passage tonight with, uh, not tonight, this morning, with verse 11. But 
the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. Who raised Jesus from the dead? The spirit. Did the Holy Spirit reside in Jesus? Yes. We just watched the video this morning. Came upon him when he was baptized. Doesn't necessarily mean he'll come upon us. It doesn't mean actually he comes upon us when we get baptized. Which, of course, people believe. But the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So people read that verse and the question is, well, yes, he gives us life. Gives us life. When? When does he give us life? Hopefully your answer in your mind is, well, when we receive Christ. But a lot of people will read this and say, no, I think Paul's talking about when we actually die and we get our glorified bodies. He's rescuing us from our mortal bodies. I don't, I don't believe that. I think Paul's saying, again, reiterating what it means to be a Christian. What happens to you when you become a Christian? The Spirit of God dwells in you and it gives you life. And it's the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Why does he reference that? Because it's a resurrection. We have been resurrected. Our old life's been crucified. We need a resurrection. We have new life. We are a new person, a new creation, and we praise God for that. Believe it. Believe it, especially when you go home and something happens and the enemy tries to get into your mind and say, don't believe that rubbish. You're still your old sinful self. I think he gives us life straight away. John 3.16 says it all. And so lots of people can look at that verse, verse 11, say, well, it gives us life from our mortal bodies. Does that guarantee healing? It means he wants us to be healed. I don't believe that for a second. Don't believe that for a second. It does not mean guaranteed healing. I don't believe that's what Paul is talking about. The question I have, which I not just want you to ask yourself, because you are the only person who can answer this, but more specifically, go out there, please. Ask your colleagues. Ask your peers, your clubmates, family, friends, neighbours, whatever opportunity you get. How do, do you have the Holy Spirit in me, in you? Do you have the Holy Spirit in you? And you might get this question, well, how do I know? How do I know if I have the Holy Spirit in me? And for now, I'm just going to say, you know, you know. But we're going to get into that more a bit later, next week. How do you know? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for security. We're thankful for the many promises that you, your spirit, will never leave us. You will never forsake us. Even when we are faithless, Lord, those times when we doubt, those times even when we might ignore you, 
where we might even go further than that and grieve you? Oh, Father, we're thankful for eternal security that you never give up on us. Never give up on us. Even when we go ahead and commit sins that are contrary to what you want us to do, we're thankful that you don't just turn your back on us, that you just don't class us as your enemies, but you counsel us through it. You encourage us through it. You do all you can to get us back on the right track. We're just so thankful, Lord, because we don't deserve any of it. Even when we stuff up so many times, it's like we don't deserve it even more. Just thank you for your love. And help us. Help us who are holy right now. Help us during those times when we are tempted to not act as we are holy. Help us to repent of those. Just help us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.